This is the Moira Pentecostal Church podcast, providing you with sound biblical teaching. We hope you will be encouraged, challenged, and blessed by this ministry. All right, this morning we want to go together to uh, the book of Ephesians, uh, chapter 1. Ephesians, chapter 1. This letter of Paul to the Ephesians is an incredibly rich piece of Christian literature. I read it second only to Paul's letter to the Romans. It's like a casket full of precious jewels. It's full of nuggets of grace and truth. It's probably the one book in the Bible that I have read more than any other book over the years. In all of my Bibles, if you saw them closed, you would see the darkest line is right there. And I I never tire of reading it. I I never tire of delving into the inexhaustible riches that you find in this. So I would encourage you to read this book often and meditatively. Just think about it, meditate on it, read it often. It's a short book. You can read it through very, very quickly. But just to mull over it and think about it. It really is that good. It's one of Paul's prison epistles. The other three are Colossians and Philippians and Philemon. It's been about 25 years since Paul met Christ on the road to Damascus. And of course, he became the greatest missionary evangelist that the church has ever known. Wonderful, wonderful ministry he had. And over several years, he undertook three great missionary journeys that was to cover uh, most of the Roman Empire. And in that time, he raised up churches, and he was absolutely fearless and determined and resolute when it came to preaching the gospel and defending the faith. Two-thirds of the New Testament was penned by Paul, so we owe Paul a great deal. Even the two prayers in the book of Ephesians are probably the best prayers you read in Scripture apart from our Lord Jesus Christ. And so it's something that we should read often. Paul had a very deep connection with the church at Ephesus. And about A.D. 53, he first ministered here in Ephesus, but only for a short period. You can find that in Acts 18. And he was accompanied then by a great godly husband and wife team, Aquila and Priscilla, and also Apollos, who was a a brilliant speaker, who was a fabulous communicator. He was also there. And then a couple of years later, Paul comes back to Ephesus, and this time he stayed for at least a minimum of two years, the longest time he stayed in any place. And in that particular time, uh, it was probably twice as long as he ever spent at Corinth, for example. And it was during this period that Paul established and grounded this church in this great metropolis uh, of Ephesus. And he stayed there until opposition, tremendous opposition, uh, caused him to leave. And you can find that in Acts 19. (coughs) So nearly 10 years later, in AD 62 or thereabouts, when he was first imprisoned in Rome, he wrote this fantastic letter to his beloved congregation in 
Ephesus. Now, you, you have to understand that when we talk about the church in Ephesus, it was not in one building that we are today. In fact, church buildings as we know them, places built specially for worship of Christ, didn't come into force to about 200 years after Jesus. And so they'd meet in homes or in buildings perhaps that they were lent to them or maybe some businessman had a, a place or maybe a big courtyard. And so you can understand that when they talk about the church in Ephesus, it was spread out all over the city. And of course, Paul at one time, when, whenever the Jews wouldn't let him preach anymore in the synagogue, then he preached in the school of Tyrannus. And some of you perhaps who's been to Ephesus maybe actually stood there. And uh, he, he was there for about two years just preaching and teaching every day. And so he writes this great letter. And he also writes at the same time the letter to the Colossians. Uh, the Christians at Colossae, and also to his business Christian man friend, Philemon. And Tychicus, who was a leader in the church at Colossae, who knew Philemon for sure, probably was in his house actually, uh, he actually was the one who took this book back uh, to the church at Ephesus and to the church at Colossae, and probably also uh, to Philemon. It also was the place, Ephesus, where he wrote his first letter to the Corinthian church, 1 Corinthians. So Ephesus was a magnificent city. It was built on the seaport and the Ionia coast uh, in Asia Minor. And <coughs> for those of you who have been there, you know that's in Turkey today. Hands up how many people in here has ever been to visit Ephesus, the city of Ephesus? Yeah, a number of us. And of course, it's only ruins today, but you get a, an idea of the magnificence of what the city used to be. Now, then it was a seaport. Today, it's about, about two kilometers inland because the river sailed it up the harbor and sailed it up until it's, it's now literally two kilometers inland. But then, of course, it was a great seaport. It had great buildings. Uh, one of its libraries, Celsus Library, had 12,000 scrolls. It had theatres. It had a great big outdoor arena that the Greeks built that held 25,000. So this is a major, major city, Roman city at this particular time. It had public baths. It had schools. Unfortunately, it had brothels. It had everything. And Ephesus also was the epicenter of the worship of Diana or Artemis. And they had a massive temple built in honor of Diana or Artemis and a great, huge statue, uh, which obviously would be the first thing travelers would see coming into the harbor. I mean, it would just be massive and beautiful, and they would see that. And of course, uh, it, it brought devotees from all over the then known world to worship Diana. She was the, the fertility goddess and was worshiped by licentious acts which I don't need to go into. You understand what I mean by that. And that was the type of worship. And so the silversmiths in the city, they were making a fortune with all the Diana paraphernalia. They'd make little silver statues and they would sell them to the devotees and to the travelers and they would be, you know, tourists, whatever, they would sell these. And in fact, that got Paul into trouble because when people were getting saved, they were no longer worshiping Diana. They were no longer buying these little silver statuettes. And so the, uh, Demetrius, the silversmith, he kicked up a whole fuss in a row. And in fact, the people all congregated in that great outdoor arena. And for the space of two hours, they shouted out loud, great as Diana of the Ephesians. Great as Diana of the Feeds for two hours nonstop. And so it was a, also a hotbed of, of magic. Lots of people practiced the black arts. But again, 
when people got saved and they left that behind, then one day they had a burning of their magic books and the price of it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. And so you can see by this that it was a huge city and it was rife with paganism and all kinds of licentious acts that was going on everywhere uh, and also black magic. Now we're not sure, oh, by the way, the Ephesians also had a, uh, a great synagogue there because there was lots of Jews at the time. And, and Paul, of course, when he would go where there was a synagogue, that would be one of the first places he would preach if he was allowed. Uh, we're not exactly sure how Christianity first came to Ephesus. Uh, perhaps it was maybe the, uh, some Jews or proselytes who went to the great feast of Pentecost, the day when the Holy Spirit came in power, and Peter preached that first great sermon, and thousands got saved, and then we go back to their homeland. And so maybe it was some of those who came back and brought Christianity into this great city. But what we do know is that this extended stay of Paul's is when the church was established, uh, when the church was actually formed as a coherent, for, coherent force within that city. This was down to the teaching and the preaching of the Apostle Paul. So now, as a prisoner in Rome, he now writes this fantastic letter. But this letter is different than most of the other letters that he wrote to other churches. It's different in that he's not dealing with any controversies the way he had to deal with in the Corinthian church. He's not trying to straighten out any false teaching the way he had to do with the church at Colossae, uh, who was into Gnosticism, which is kind of a bit like New Age today. It was a mixture between Hebrew worship and, and paganism mixed together, a, a syncretism of worship. And he had to, that was getting rife in the churches, and he had to deal with that, but not in this letter. It's also different in that there's no personal references. Remember when he wrote... Uh, to the Romans, at the end of it, there was like 30-something names he, he wrote, he, he referenced people who he knew that helped him. There's none of that here. The only names mentioned is Tychicus, the one I said earlier, who took this letter back to Ephesus and to Colossae. Now, that's why some people believe that this letter was an encyclical. Uh, that means it was a general letter that was to be circulated around the churches. It just so happens we know it as the letter to the church of Ephesus. You know, that whenever John wrote Revelation, there were seven churches mentioned. Ephesus was one of them, by the way. And that was an encyclical that had to be circulated around the churches. Uh, it's not my intention this morning to do an explanational, positional, verse-by-verse -verse teaching on this book. I've done that in the past. But uh, I do want to look at some selected passages. And... I'll not be finished this morning, by the way. I'll come back to this. But I do want to look at some selected passages and see how we can be inspired or challenged or comforted or encouraged uh, through what Paul has written to this particular church. Uh, by the way, if, you're, if you were going to take this book as a study yourself, the first three chapters uh, is dealing with doctrine. The last three, three is dealing with duty. Or if you want to break that up further then you can break it into three. The Christians worship, the Christians walk, the Christians warfare. There's, there's different ways it can be divided up. Uh, but we're just going to dip in this morning, especially just dip into this first particular chapter. So enough of the introduction, enough of laying out the table, as it were. Let's see if there's some spiritual food for us this morning to nourish Amen. our souls. Amen. Amen.
All right, so let's begin then to look here at the very first uh, chapter. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus. Now, it's unfortunate that religion has hijacked this word since. If we mention since today, uh, people automatically think, well, that's somebody who is already dead. And some religious body has looked into their life to see how pious they were over their lifetime. And if, if there's a minimum of two miracles attributed to them, then maybe then and only then could they be uh, put up for canonization. And if they're canonized, they become a saint in heaven where people pray to. Now, none of that is in Scripture. That is not what Scripture intended that to be. Uh, the word saint, hagios, simply means holy one. And it's the same word we get sanctified from, which means to be set apart, that God sets us apart. So we're holy ones, as believers, set apart for God's glory and for God's service. That's all that it means. So every born-again believer is a saint as far as Scripture is concerned. The person beside you this morning, they may not look it, but they are a saint. Have a good look at them. Huh? That's a saint you're sitting beside. Harry Ironside, a great old preacher of old, he says, we do not become saints by saintliness. So it's not something that we do that makes us a saint. It's something that we're called because God has made us holy and separate unto him. So he says, we do not become a saint by saintliness, but we should be characterized by saintliness because we are saints. And so because we are saints, then we should live in a saintly way. So to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Paul, as he was wont to do at times in writing these letters, particularly when he's writing to a, a, a Gentile church, which the Ephesians were, by and large, there would be some Jews among them, obviously, that could see it. And so he writes here, and he greets them two ways. He greets them in a typical Greek, Greek fashion by saying grace to you, or charis, which is a Greek word, and then peace to you, which is shalom, which is a Hebrew word. Uh, and so he's covering all bases here. But for him, it's not just a, a typical greeting. It's not just a normal greeting. It means much more to Paul. And Paul thinks of grace. He's not just thinking of just a nice saying. No, we meet somebody in the street and say, how are you? And we walk on. We never even stop to see how they are, don't we? What about you? And we never even stop to see, well, what about you? There's heart scarling saying, well, let me tell you what about me. <laughs> So this is not just a, a nice little greeting. He, he really, really means what grace means and what shalom, what peace really means. Blessed. Now, from verse 3 to verse 14, you see, the translators of the Bible, uh, they did us a big favor in that <coughs> when the scriptures were written initially, there was no chapters, there was no verses. So the translators, to make it easier for us to understand they divide it into chapters and verses. Uh, they 
put grammar in there. They put full stops and commas and colons and semicolons, whatever. And, and by and large, it's a good job. Now, sometimes they get it wrong. I'll show you in a moment what I mean by that. But sometimes, for instance, when it comes to the end of a chapter, the next maybe two or three verses in the next chapter should have belonged to the previous chapter. You know, so sometimes they just did... I mean, the punctuation's not inspired. The Word of God's inspired, but their punctuation's not inspired, so that's where sometimes little mistakes can creep in. But verse 3 to verse 14, and there is, is all one long sentence. So let me just read that to you because we'll not go any further than that today anyway. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, which he made abound towards us in all wisdom and prudence. I mean, this is just full of stuff, isn't it? Yeah. You know, from verse 3 to verse 6, I was thinking about this last night, I can see seven or eight sermons in that alone. So that's why we just can't... Uh, we just can't spend a lot of time as that on it. And... and and anyway, where, where did I finish up there? Well, let me go verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound towards us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. So that originally was just all one long sentence. But notice here. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Paul in these verses here, did you notice how much is past tense? All these spiritual blessings he's talking about, he writes in past tense. For example... In verse 3 again, who has blessed us? Right? Verse 5, having predestined us to the adoption of sons. Verse 7, in him we have redemption. Verse 8, which he made to abound towards us. Uh, verse 11, in him also we have obtained an inheritance. Everything in the past tense. All the spiritual blessings in heavenly places, he writes as past tense. Now, before 
when there was only God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, before there was even angels created, before there was a universe, before there were galaxies, before there was this planet, before we even existed, God had spiritual blessings for us in heavenly places. How did he do that? How could that be before we even existed? Simple, because he stored them up, as it were, in Christ. Stored up in Christ for us whenever we would be redeemed. On the day of our redemption, then all those spiritual blessings that are in Christ has been released for us. But they were stored up in him before there ever was a word. So God's plan was before time and in the eternity past. Again, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the word, having predestined us to the adoption of sons by Jesus Christ to himself. In him we have redemption, so forth. In him we have also obtained an inheritance. In him you also trusted. 27 times in this book alone, Paul writes, in him. Over 160 times in all of his writings, he writes, in him, or by him, or through him. In other words, Jesus, as far as Paul was concerned, was the center of everything. Everything flowed from him. God, the Father, stored up, could I say, reserved in him everything for us, for our day of redemption. The apostle Paul was the one who grasped this. He spent time with Jesus in the Arabian desert listening to the voice of the master. This is where this revelation came from because nobody knew this before. This was a mystery before, but now has been revealed. Notice also that all this was done before we existed. Our opinion was not sought. Our help was not needed. And aren't you glad for that? Aren't you glad God didn't wait till we came along and says, now that you're born, uh, what would you like your life to be like? Where would you like to live? Where would you like to go? Who would you like to marry? What would you like to have? How would you like to live for me? No. No, no, no. Because we'd have messed up big time, wouldn't we? Put everything into our hands and we'll mess up. That's why we need the Lord. So he didn't wait for us to arrive he already had it pre-planned for us. And the trick for us is, if I can use that term, is to find out what God's pre-plan was and then live in that. Because that's the best for us. Because God knows the best for us. You know, whenever somebody's expecting a child, and particularly the first child, they're, they're planning ahead. You know, they're, they're, if they know what the child's going to be, they're going to paint that room either blue or pink, is that right? And then they're going to, that's an insider thing, and then they're going to get uh, a little cot and little toys and this, that, and the other. Uh, the child knows nothing about this. It's in the womb. It has no clue. It doesn't need to know. The parents are preparing for its arrival. 
And once it arrives, then it will get everything the parents had got for it, but not until then. And of course, as it grows up, then the parents are still planning ahead. It's planning schooling, it's planning education, all the rest of it. In fact, when they're married and they're gone, the children are gone, you're still, they're still looking after you. Aren't they? They're still, they're still asking you things. They're still wanting, Dad, could you lend me a tenner? You know, there's, you know, there's always... But as parents, we love them, of course. They're our kids and we love them. And, and any good parent's going to plan for their children because we love them. And that's what God has done for us. In fact, if we just read there in verse 8, which he made to abound towards us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known us to the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he, prom- which he purposed in himself. No, that's not the verse I want. Where is the verse I want? Ah. Hmm. Things just goes out of your head, you know. Ah, right. Yes, got it. Got it. Verse 4. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, comma, before him in love, comma, having predestined us to the adoption of sons by Jesus Christ himself. Now this comma, which the translators put in there, I'm not sure that it should be there. Listen to this. Having predestined us to the adoption of sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. Sorry. Whoever's doing this tape, could you edit this here? Johnny, could you edit all my mistakes out, please? So as I won't look a total idiot when somebody's listening to the podcast. So I'm not going to go to that church. That boy's talking up the left this morning. All right. (laughs) Right, verse 4. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, before him in love, comma, having predestined us to adoption of sons. That we should be holy and without blame before him, full stop. And then, in love, having predestined us to the adoption of sons. It doesn't take anything away from that first part, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him. It doesn't take anything away from that. That's what we're supposed to be. But in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ himself. In other words, everything God had planned for us and pre-planned for us and predestined for us, it was all done in love towards us. So that's why we should want the will of God for us because it was done from a heart of love for us. Paul speaks about the good and acceptable and the perfect will of God, Romans 12 and 2. And that's why we should embrace the will of God because God's heart of love was in it for us. Whatever God has planned for us is done because he loved us and he loves us. So why should not we embrace his will for our lives? It's the best for us because God planned it for us in his great love towards us. Glory to God. I notice this. 
In him, verse 11, in him also we have obtained an inheritance being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Now this word predestined or predestination is a scary word for lots of people. And it's a misunderstood word. Nowhere in scripture does it say that God has predetermined some people to go to hell. Nowhere. And that's a major, major mistake that has been made in the church. Major mistake. There's too many scriptures that say the opposite to that. Predestination is to do with the believer, not the unbeliever. Let me give you a couple of scriptures. 1 Timothy 2.6 Who gave himself a ransom for all. 1 Timothy 2, 3 and 4 this is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior, who will have all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. 2 Peter 3, 9. And God is not... God is not willing. It's not his will. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. What could be clearer than that? Now, some people have also taken those scriptures to another ridiculous conclusion, that because God wills all men to be saved, all men will be saved. That's called universalism. And that creeps into the church from time to time. Not so long ago, some preachers across the world was preaching this nonsense that everybody will be saved one day because of that. But they completely misunderstood it. Not everybody's going to be saved. But God knows who is going to be saved. You see, God by his foreknowledge, God by his foreknowledge knows because his omniscience, he knows everything. And he knows the end from the beginning. So, listen to this. In Romans 8, verse 28 and 29. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of the Son, that he may be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called, whom he called, these he also justified, whom he justified, these he also glorified. Those whom he foreknew, he predestined. He knows everyone who will receive his son and everyone who won't. That's different than saying that he's already predetermined who's going to receive and who's going to refuse. That he's predetermined those who are going to refuse, they're in a, they're, they, they can't even, they, they'll never come because they're predetermined to go to hell. That's not in scripture. It's not there. And it's a travesty against the scriptures that are there. Because God foreknew that you and I was going to receive his son, then he predestined great blessings for us. He predetermined those spiritual blessings in heavenly places that were stored up in Christ for us to receive on our day of redemption. He's still with me? Now, I know the election of God and the free will of man, the sovereignty of God, the free will of man. 
It's taxed the brains of theologians since time immemorial. And I'm not sure that we're ever going to come to total terms on that. But the idea that God has predetermined people to go to hell, get that out of your head. That's completely and utterly wrong. So what he has predetermined, those whom he foreknew, you and me, foreknew that we would receive Christ. He predetermined great blessings for us that will take us from time into eternity forever and forever, amen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Christ died for every man, but God knew every man who would receive that salvation. And he knows every man who won't receive it. Do we have a will? Some people say we have no will. We have a will. God gave us a will. Gave us a will. As the Paul or Peter said to those, you always resist the Holy Spirit. So we can resist. We've got a will. We can choose. We can decide. Thank God his Holy Spirit comes and helps us to choose and helps us to decide and softens our hard hearts and enlightens us and convicts us. It's all part of that great work he does. <clears throat> that we who first trusted in Christ, verse 12, should be to the praise of his glory. In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. In him also having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Now, in Acts 1, the Holy Spirit is the one who has promised. You shall receive the promise of the Holy Spirit, Jesus said. You shall be endued with power, the promise of the Holy Spirit who was to come. But here, you're seated with the Holy Spirit. Here, the Holy Spirit is the promise. God has sent his Holy Spirit for many things, but one of them is to make us a promise. He says, you're sealed with the Holy Spirit, a promise, <clears throat> who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession. <clears throat> How do we know? How do we know that everything God has predetermined that we would receive when we accepted Christ? How do we know when Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, receive to you unto myself, that where I am, there may be also. How do we know that's going to happen? Because he's not here, he's gone, he's back to the glory the chances are that none of us will ever see him until we get to the glory. So how do we know? Because he sent his Holy Spirit as a promise that that's going to happen. As a down payment, actually, the guarantee of our inheritance. The earnest money, it means. Now, you know what earnest money is? It's a deposit. 
got to get a house. You need a big, 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 massive deposit these days. That's earnest money. And, and when you give that, what you're saying is, I'm committing myself to this, that I'll pay the rest. All right? Now, let's get one thing straight. Jesus on the cross paid for our redemption in full. Those three words he cried, it is finished, is one word in the Greek, telestai, and telestai means paid in full. So as far as your salvation is concerned, as far as your soul's salvation is concerned, that has already been purchased, paid in full. There's nothing more can be paid for that. It's all settled. He paid the full price to save your eternal soul on that cross. It's paid. It's done deal. Nothing can be added to that. He doesn't need to shed his blood anymore. It's already done. But everything he has planned for us in the eternity of eternities, how do we know we're going to get that? How do we know that that mansion he's preparing for us that we're going to get there? Because he sent his Holy Spirit, as it were, as a down payment of the purchased possession. In other words, I'm sending my Holy Spirit just to get down payment to show you I am coming back for you. I'm going to claim you. You're going to be where I am. And I'm going to make sure because I've sent my Holy Spirit as the promise of that. I'm promising you that and I've sent my Spirit as the mark of that promise. Are you still with me? That's one thing that the Holy Spirit is to us is the promise of the purchase possession, a guarantee. That word guarantee in the Greek is arabona, which means, literally means engagement ring. <laughs> if a guy gives a girl an engagement ring, we know what his intentions are, isn't it? He fully intends to marry that girl. That ring is the promise, isn't it? That's the promise. I'm going to marry you. I'm giving you the ring. You're mine now. I'm claiming you. <laughs> and one day, we'll start at an altar and you'll be my bride. Arabona, that's what it means. So Jesus Christ says, he told his disciples, he says, it's necessary for me to go away, but don't worry. He says, I'm just sending one just like me. And he'll not just be with you, he'll be in you. But Paul says, he's the promise that he's coming back for us. Either that we'll die and be resurrected and get all of those things that God has planned for us, or he will come and take us in the rapture. Either way, the Holy Spirit is the promise. The Holy Spirit in you today who witnesses that we are the sons of God, the Bible says. He's God's promise to you that Christ will receive you unto himself, that where you are, he is, you may be also forever. Oh, glory to God. Let me just find this verse here. In Romans 8, likewise, the Spirit also helps our weaknesses. For we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. 
Now he who searches the hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. Now we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn of man, many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called, and those he called, he also justified. Whom he justified, he also glorified. And so Christ sent his Holy Spirit as a promise that all the things that he had predestined for us to have and to be particularly in the glory we will have and we shall be. In 2 Corinthians, Second Corinthians chapter 1, Paul writes, verse 21, Now he who establishes us with you in Christ has anointed us is God. Note this, who has also sealed us and given us the Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. So again and again, Paul emphasizes the guarantee that God has got for us is the Holy Spirit. He is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. Now earlier in that chapter we read about adoption. Adoption. And I haven't time right now to go into all. I've done that many times in the past. But adoption is, it's not son making, it's son placing. You were made a son and a daughter of God when you were born again. You were made a son or a daughter of God. But then you were placed into the family of God in adoption. Adoption those days is not like what we're thinking about today. When a son would come a certain age, even though he was a son, he'd come a certain age to take up full responsibility. It was, he was adopted. He was placed as a son with full responsibility as an adult. So the moment you got born again, you were made a son, but you're also placed as a son with responsibilities with all of the blessings that God has got for you were yours at that moment. Now, it takes us a while to understand that and to grow into that and to adapt to our adoption and to get to grips with all that God has got for us. But that moment, that's what adoption is for us. Now, we talked about until the redemption of the purchased possession. Part of the adoption process, even though it's already started on earth, it will continue into heaven. It will continue into the glory. Because God has much more for us there than he has for us here. So there's much more responsibility going to be there than even is here. Are you still with me? A little bit of theology this morning. Maybe I have to scratch your head a little bit. But there's there. Now, one of the things that we're waiting to be redeemed yet. Our soul's redeemed, our spirit's redeemed. But what about this body? What about this old body that we live in? Paul says, although the outward man is perishing, yet the inner man is being renewed every day. But what about the outer man that's perishing? 
What about this body that will fail and one day will fall into the ground? What about that, right? That's part of the purchased thing that God has. He's going to give us a new body, like onto his glorious body. But we haven't got it yet. That's still ahead. That's still for the glory. It's not for now, it's for then. For then. The same spirit that raised up Jesus from the dead will also make alive your mortal body, your death-doomed body, your body that's going to die. will make it alive. That's part of the adoption that we haven't even reached yet. That's part of adoption that you'll never experience until you get to the glory, until you get your new body, and then you'll be complete in him. Paul, you can see the much stuff Paul packs into a few verses, isn't it? You know, you could close your Bible, you could come back next week, read them same verses, and entirely different, entirely different thoughts you could get on that. It's so rich and expansive. Paul was brilliant. But it's not just his brilliance, it's the Holy Spirit revealing through him the things that God has got for us. And that's why we should read this book often. And so it says, to the praise of his glory. And in verse 11, to the praise of of his glory. In verse 6, to the praise of his glory. Everything is to the praise of his glory. God wants to glorify himself through us. We're to be to the praise of his glory. Let me say this. Salvation, your salvation, my salvation, is not the final thing that God has got for it. It's not even the main thing. It's her sanctification. It's once we get saved, it's everything from then on out, right into the glory. Salvation's just the door opener. It's the most important thing you need to get the door opened, or you'll never experience all that God has got for you. It's only the door opener, it's only the start. It's sanctification. It's God sanctifying us, setting us apart, doing things with us, getting us ready making us more like him until we get to the glory. And then forever and forever, his plans will be revealed for us. So are you through the door this morning? You receive salvation. You're through the door. Life begins. It starts when you come through the door, doesn't it? And then you go on and go on and go on right into the glory. Praise the Lord. And so, spiritual blessings in heavenly places. Verse 3 to 6 talks about the work of the Father. Verses 7 to 12 talks about the work of the Son. Verses 13 and 14 talks about the work of the Holy Spirit. And so Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all involved in your life, in God's plans for the rest of your life. How can we lose? How could we possibly lose if we've got Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all working in us and for us and through us to take us where he wants us to be. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We produce a variety of sermon videos and inspiring Christian content available for free on our YouTube channel. Just go to YouTube and search Moira Pentecostal or visit our website for more information www.mpc.org.uk